To the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am one of your hosts, Daryl Pace. And I am Byron Pace. And this week we have Ed Stafford. We've been promising for the last few weeks. We finally got the it tied down. We were also so, away in Sky. So we're sorry we're late. Yeah, we're sorry we're late. Um, if you're listening in the future, then we're not late. We're on time. <laughs> but is... if you're a regular listener <laughs> yeah. who's waiting for your subscription to come through normally on a Thursday, then we are a couple of days late. But uh, we it is because we wanted to get the Ed Stafford podcast out and uh, we were only able to record it today on the Monday. But it's going to be worth the wait. I absolutely it promise is. that. And we've got like podcast of a podcast being recorded. This whole week this is whole like week full of podcasts. Full of podcasts so. uh, plenty to go on in the, in the coming weeks. Uh, most of you will probably know who Ed Stafford is already. Uh, you get a full rundown of his sort of li- list of achievements, but he's a, he's a modern day adventurer and explorer. He's got a new book out called Adventures for a Lifetime, uh, and he was the first person to ever walk the length of the Amazon. But you're going to hear all about that in this podcast. Fascinating man. <laughs> uh, very humorous as well at times, and uh, someone that uh, I've personally taken a lot of inspiration from over the last sort of 10 years that he's been exploring and doing awesome things around the planet. Indeed. Uh, we have been on Sky last week, like I mentioned, and we were doing all things whiskey. We were. And gin. Been, and gin. And gin and whiskey. Uh, it's been a while since I've been... You've been there back recently, but uh, there was a period where I was going like three or four times it was a year. More, it was more pleasurable this time than earlier in the year. It was literally tourist hell when we went. Yeah. When I went in summer. And then when we went a week ago, there was almost no one All around. All the tourists had vacated it, honestly, for the winter, which was I've, good for I've, us. We've, we've kept... In fact, no, no one go this time of year because we don't want you there. <laughs> Uh, no, it was great. We were only there, like actually on the island for for two days, but two two solid days. Uh, we started doing some work with um, Gallic whiskies, yes, and yeah. gin. Uh, so they've just started um, an Instagram page, which is um, Gallic whiskey. If, if you just search Gallic whiskey gin, that's the tag for for Instagram, and the first two pictures from the trip are up there. I can, uh, one, two, three, four, five, there's six bottles of whiskey. We, we, we've got it lined, we're lined, <laughs> up, lined right up in now. the office. Yeah. Well, I know what I'm doing for the rest of the day. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to say, what was I going to say? I was going to say something to you. Oh, competitions. Let's do the competitions. Okay, so we have um, another competition. And while I explain what you can win, Daryl's going to think about how you can enter it. Oh, I've already thought You've of it. Already, he's yeah, one yeah. step ahead yeah. of me. So we are going to give you the chance to win a CZ Firearms doormat. We've already given away two of these. The last time I put up a picture with my little puppy, and I might actually do it with him sitting on the doormat again because he's about twice the size he was <laughs> when I took the last picture. Uh, it's been uh, incre- incredibly popular. Although I'm, I'm a little disappointed that the last person who won didn't send us a picture with the doormat, wherever it is that they've put it in the house. Yep. Maybe they're uh, not allowed it in the house. <laughs> maybe they're not allowed it in the house. Uh, so that is what you have a chance to win. Uh, a CZ doormat will stick up the pictures and how you enter, which Daryl's just about to tell you, on our social medias as usual. So if you head over to our Facebook or our Instagram, it's the same. You'll see the post on uh, on the story or you'll see it on the Facebook. And we want funny pictures of your dogs. Or if you don't own a, <laughs> if you don't own a dog, uh, then just another animal is fine. Yeah, funny uh, pictures but of your yeah, dog. I like uh, that. Uh, funny pictures of your dog doing, I don't know, like my dog sleeps in the most ridiculous ways every night. And um, yeah, just funny faces doing funny things. That's that's what we want. We or love, you can we email love us. animals and we love dogs. So what? I said, or you can email us. If or, you yeah, if you don't use social media, you can also email us as well. So just send us send us any way you can the funny pictures and then we'll decide. And the one that tickles us the most. We'll <laughs> exactly. have a vote in the office. Yeah. The one which makes us laugh the most uh, will win the CZ doormat. And other news, uh, Modern Huntsman is well and truly, volume two, I should say, add, is well and truly on its way to Did you the see UK. the picture I sent you? I did. Uh, we, 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 we got evidential proof of the pallet being shipped from <laughs> Literally America. Literally an entire pallet. Uh, for the last year since we've been bringing it to the UK, um, it's, it has been a little bit of a struggle, I have to say, with the, the postage. Not, not due to the Modern Huntsman uh, guys, it's due to the incompetence D- of every male company. person. Yeah. on the planet which evidently honestly I don't understand the, the people that deliver mail 
or the people in between. Apart from our poster, he's awesome. Our poster is good, but we, he's, he's, we've known him for like 15 <laughs> years. Um, but when it's not our regular postie, they tend to leave things for the dogs to chew on, which that ha- that's happened. Been happened. That's yeah. happened. Um, and also people that deliver the parcels seem to want to kick or leave stuff on runways or they... they in the rain? That's yeah. happened? I just, I've never... We ship a lot of stuff, as people know, because we, we sell T-shirts and everything like that. Um, and I've never known a group of of you know people that work in that industry that are so incompetent <laughs> at, at actually doing their job because the amount of parcels that go missing or yeah, damaged it's is very frustrating. Very frustrating. But hopefully, we've seen the picture. It's a, <laughs> it's a wrapped, a plastic wrapped pallet full of volume twos. It was already on its way last week. I sent out an email to everybody who had pre-ordered volume two from us just this morning, just to give them an update. Uh, there's still a little bit of time to pre-order. Basically, until it lands, we're going to keep the pre-orders up. But after that, the yeah. price is going to go up a bit. So get your pre-order in now for volume two. And we have pretty much sold out of volume one, but there is more coming on that oh, yeah, yeah, there is as yeah. well. So um, yeah, just keep an, keep an eye on that. And we'll be doing some, some Christmas bundles, providing we don't sell out of them all before Christmas. We're, I'm very excited <laughs> yeah. to see it. I can't wait to get it in the office and get my grubby paws on it. And in fact, we'll be uh, having a podcast with Tyler and possibly even uh, the lady behind the design, who happens to be Tyler's girlfriend, uh, because they're going to be here um, sometime towards the end of this month. So we'll we'll definitely get them on a podcast to talk about Volume 2 and a whole manner of other things, I'm sure. Yes, we will indeed. Uh, do you have anything else? Or no, should we let people I think dive straight into Ed? Yeah, no, I think so. Okay. I think uh, we'll, we'll let you enjoy a fantastic podcast with Ed Stafford. Ed, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Thank you very much for joining us today. My brother and I have been following your adventures, I think, pretty much since you finished or just before you finished your uh, extremely long walk of the Amazon. Uh, which we're going to touch on today and your adventures after, and of course, um, your new book, um, Adventures for a Lifetime. But before we get to that, and because this has just happened, one of the things I love about particularly British adventurers and explorers is what an amazing community it seems to be. And I know this weekend you were with uh, Ross Edgley as he finished what was an incredible feat. What was it like being there at the end? Yeah. Um, well, hi, guys. Thank you for inviting me on the on the podcast. Um it was it was a lovely weekend. It was something that I wanted to go down and 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 um, show my support for really because um, I don't know Ross at all. I um, I commented on his um, on his social media when he I think he, when he broke Sean Conway's um, record when he pretty much done the done the full length of um, Britain and it, and and he was turning the corner and coming back down the North Sea and I commented because I was just blown away by what he had achieved um, and uh, yeah we he he. He um, got in contact back, and we've been chatting for the last, um, I suppose, month and a half, really. Um, and so I just wanted to show a, a bit of solidarity, really, because swimming around Britain, especially finishing at the beginning of November, is no is no mean feat at all. And you know, he was he was getting into the water time and time again, day after day, for five months. And um, and I suppose I do feel like I'm, I'm at a stage of my career where rather than feel any sort of jealousy or envy i just i just wanted to go down and give him a big hug and and say well done mate i just think it's so impressive what he'd done and um you know of course he was absolutely swamped by people wanting to have a have a piece of him yesterday and i didn't want to get mixed up in that really because that wasn't really my intention for going down i just wanted to i wanted him to see my face and know that um you know what um People have recognised what he's done, you know. People um, have sat up and gone, that's incredible. So, uh, yeah, just to show a bit of solidarity, really. No, it it was incredible. And uh, having swum a lot as a youngster, I can get my head round a little bit about what would have been involved, and I I don't envy him that. It looked horrendous. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree. um, There was a a sort of fun swim invite at the end of it, and people could swim about 400 metres out into the sea and then come back in with Ross. And I was asked if I wanted to be a part of that, and the thought of just swimming 400 meters out the sea bloody terrified me, quite frankly. So, yeah, no, no, incredible feat. Yeah. Now, for you, in terms of your adventure career, 
it yeah. really kicked off with your your walk of the Amazon. But just yeah. to give people a little bit of background about where you came from, because for me personally, I always found that quite inspiring. It kind of gave me the feeling that if you put your mind to it, anything is possible for anyone. Tell people about about your background just before you made that leap, having left the the army to go and walk the Amazon. Okay, I mean, I, I left the military and I did um, conservation expeditions for a number of years. Um, I uh, well, actually, initially, when I the, as I left the army, I thought that I wanted to become a stockbroker and I thought I was going to go and work in the city and have a high high paying job and a Porsche and a probably a drug habit and um, <laughs> and um, I couldn't get a job in the city was the honest truth. Um, I I was I started to do a, the qualifications, certificate and securities. I was doing loads of networking meetings and everyone was saying, look, Ed, I'm really struggling to hold on to my own job, let alone get you one. And at that time, I was um, I was just looking to for a time, a place filler, really. And um, there was a, a job on a um, on a board, basically, which was for ex-British Army officers. Um, and it was it was a list of available jobs. And they were mostly estate agents and uh, and and jobs that I suppose I, I now look at as, as, as very sort of run-of-the-mill everyday jobs. And at the bottom, there was Expedition Leader Belize, and it was to take a group of um, uh, gap year students, so from 18 to about 24, into the middle of the rainforest in Belize and uh, do a conservation project with them. And I just thought, that looks absolutely amazing. Um, and I only thought it would be three months until I you know, then came back and got a job in the city. But I think I was just blown away by the fact that um, there were jobs out there where, where you could just have such an amazing time and it was actually doing good as well you know we were doing conservation projects and so I felt good about myself as well and um, I, I suppose I had a little bit of an epiphany that that um, leading expeditions and having adventures was was hopefully going to be my career from then on really I did it for a number of years it paid absolute peanuts I mean I was on for a couple of years I was on about 50 quid a week which um, which is less than the the dole in the UK um, and um, and yet it, it didn't really matter because when I was on the expeditions, life life was free. But um, I did accrue a, a bit of debt, so I had to go and, and do some sort of consultancy work in Afghanistan for a while um, and um, advised the United Nations during the, the first presidential elections after after 9-11 and the subsequent American attack. And then um, I suppose I reached this phase where about nine years after I'd, I'd started leading expeditions, I, I suppose I was getting slightly tired of um of listening to who's got what exam results and who fancies who and um and i thought you know what i want to do something a little bit more grown up and something for myself um and i'd always had dreams of going to the amazon but all my rainforest experience had come from central america or southeast asia and um i thought you know what let's let's look for a massive um a massive expedition I could do in the jungle in in the amazon and um i knew of and i'd read books of um the, the best one that I'd read was by Joe Kane, who was a, a New York journalist who'd uh, accompanied Piotr Hemilinski on a um, on a kayaking journey down the Amazon, which was called Running the Amazon. And it was amazing. And I wanted to sort of uh, have the same sort of adventure, but I was absolutely rubbish at kayaking. And um, I knew there were like grade five plus rapids um, and going down going down the um, Apple Remac and the Colca Canyon. And so basically I thought, right, I can't kayak. Why don't walk it? And um, I Googled lots of expeditions um, to try and find ones that had walked the length of the Amazon because I wanted to learn from their post-expedition reports. And I went down to the Royal Geographical Society and again did loads of research and looking for people who had walked the Amazon. And then the more I looked, the more I, it suddenly occurred to me that if I was to do this, I, I may well be the first person ever to, to do it. So I think at that point... A, a real spark ignited inside me and um, and I do think it was slightly ego driven but you know the concept of being the first person ever to do something especially something quite so big um, really really excited me so from then on I never looked back and um, and that became an utter utter um, obsession I suppose it was was to be that first person to walk the length of the Amazon yeah what was it like getting support for such an ambitious project i mean i can imagine at the time there was probably a lot of people that didn't think it was actually possible yeah i mean most there wasn't anybody i don't think who actually said yeah you'll do it it'll be fine apart from you know my family and friends but but um but as i've as i've uh, been quoted saying a number of times they they hadn't really got a clue what they were talking about um um it was i think 
in my opinion, it was difficult getting support. It was difficult getting financial support. But I think most people, especially the so-called experts, um, got somewhat phased by the expedition in, the, in its entirety. They looked at the the whole expedition and they, they just thought it was too big. It was too um, it was too much to do. And yet, when I broke it down into individual de- days, I thought, do you know what? None of those days are going to be impossible days to walk that little that little chunk of rainforest and therefore if you bolt them all together surely it's possible i mean there were a few sort of um i had a few strokes of luck i um i'd seen this image on on google that was um it seemed to be showing the um extent of um the flood waters at peak flood season because the biggest i suppose reason why everyone said that walking the amazon was impossible is that there's no there's no banks really to the Amazon. The the waters rise in flood season, and it and the waters just cut into the rainforest, and you get this area called Varzea Forest, which is flooded forest basically, and and that stretches about sort of 80 to 100 kilometres either side of the main river. So they thought, you know, you can't walk that because you'll be walking submerged in water. But anyway, this image seemed to seem to show the extent of these flooded forests. I had been taken somehow through the jungle canopy, and so I wrote to NASA, and literally within Six days, this bundle of CD-ROMs came through the post. Amazing. And Sorry? Uh, amazing that they were just so receptive to, to hand over it the was, information It was remarkable. And if you were to be a... <laughs> there were so many things in this expedition that, that just happened that seemed to slot into place. I, I saw, and I'm not a religious person at all, but so many times people went out of their way to help or or the exact nugget of information that I needed in order to do something just was presented to me and yeah they 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 didn't charge anything they sent a bundle of cd-roms and suddenly i had this very i mean it was such a niche unique project that they'd done with using refraction and and satellites and and they'd looked through the jungle canopy and i and i suddenly could see where the extent of the flood waters were admittedly it was data from back in 1996 but it still showed essentially the 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 hard ground line that I needed to then annotate onto my main maps and then and then use in order to plan a route. And I think that information meant that, of course, every tributary has its own associated flooded forest as well, which we would then have to traverse. But but it did mean that the main bulk of the of the flooded forest I could I could avoid. I could just handrail the river at a safe distance away and know that I would be walking on hard ground. And that and I suppose the evolution of small pack rafts at the time, um, Alpaca, this Canadian firm that, that made, made the first pack rafts, were were just coming into um, into sort of public knowledge um, and. Um, I'd used them in Patagonia on mountaineering expeditions and just thought they were amazing um, in their ability to take us across big sort of glacial lakes and stuff like that. But I also thought, you know, this this bit of um, equipment might work for flooded forests. If if we do get into the thick of it, even though they're inflatable and everything in the Amazon has a spike on it, I thought, you know, we can be very careful, kneel in the front of it, and um, if it gets above head high, I can literally kneel, kneel in the front of the craft and chop with a machete and, and, and continue that way. And, um, and I think those two things, the ability to cross rivers without building a raft and, and that data from NASA, they were, they were what gave me the confidence to think that everyone else was wrong and, um, and I was right, I suppose. One of the things I, was, I heard you speak about before and I was massively impressed with was your dedication to being absolutely certain that when you got to the end... Uh, spoiler alert, you, you managed to get to the end. <laughs> mm. uh, that no one could ever criticize you for not having walked all of it. I think there, there was one uh, part of the story where you'd had to cross a river, but then you walked back quite a number of days to ensure that you hadn't cut anything out. Well, it wasn't just, it wasn't just one time. It was every, every single time. It, it originated because um, I, my, my, the walking partner that, that I ended up being the most consistent um, it was called Cho and he was a Peruvian and he only intended to walk for five days but he ended up walking for two years of his life with me and he became such a good friend but we would walk together but we would he wasn't indigenous Cho he was he was actually sort of of African um, Peruvian descent and he and I would often walk with local indigenous guys as well because they would know the forest around their community better we started walking with this couple of um, guys who were brothers, actually, and um, they, were, they were the Dongo brothers. And they very, we had two of these inflatable pack rafts, and they very quick. The Dongo brothers were in one, and Joe and I were in the other, and they worked out very quickly. They didn't paddle very fast, 
they they could see that they were just drifting down river and essentially the further they drift down river the less walking they had to do so at lunchtime i said look guys you can't do this this expedition is called walking the amazon we need to walk walk rather than drift down the river and they sort of nodded and pretended that they they knew what i was talking about and then in the afternoon they they did exactly the same again and i reckon by the end of the day we'd probably drifted down the river about seven kilometers and i was getting really stressed about this and i i, I said to cho at the end of the day we can't let this happen again this is you know we're, we're teaching people because we're saying we're walking the amazon and and we're actually we've drifted down river you know probably over 10 kilometers by the end of the day and um and cho said no, it's not that we can't let it happen again, Ed. We need to go back and do the whole day again. And um, immediately he said it, like the stress in my shoulders just evaporated and I smiled and I went, do you know what, you're absolutely right, we do. And, you know, it took us a couple of days to even source an outboard motor that would take us back up river. And we lost maybe the best part of a week and and obviously the, the, money, the money cost of that as well. But it meant that we hadn't, advanced at all by um, floating down river and we could start again with a clean conscience and then we made that as a made that into a rule that whenever we crossed a river for the entire rest of the duration of the of, of the expedition that we would walk back to perpendicular to where we um to where we embarked from on, on on one bank and we'd make sure it was directly across from the other and initially that meant walking back sort of 80 meters or so but by the time my um by the time we crossed the amazon um the, the last the very last time near the mouth um and you know we had to sleep on an island um in the middle because it was so wide by that point um we had to walk back for 10 days basically to get to the perpendicular to where we set off because that was how much the river had taken us down so it was 10 days extra walking but i just thought you know what if you're going to do this you've got to do it correctly and i wanted to get a guinness book of records um i wanted to get a guinness record and i knew that if i was absolutely meticulous about how i was conducting it then then that was far more likely so uh it did seem a complete and utter madness at the time because we were walking backwards but um but it was necessary to do what we we were claiming that we wanted to do yeah just out of interest how much did your pack rafts weigh because you know that every pack ounce of... are about a kilo and a half i think okay, so not so as... we had a we had two four-piece carbon fiber split paddles so the, the sort of double-ended normal kayak paddles split down into four pieces and fitted quite snugly on the side of the rucksacks when we were walking and and the and the actual raft itself packed down i mean it looked about the size of a conventional old school uh, roll mat or or thermo rest and um and took up took up no more space and and uh, yeah it, it weighed yeah i think it was about a, a kilo and a half but but it gave us such versatility i suppose you know the i originally planned the expedition thinking we were going to have to build rafts when we got to rivers but i didn't know <laughs> i didn't know how many bloody rivers there were in the <laughs> it's quite a lot um and so you know i think those bits of kit were incredible although you know things evolve i mean there were certainly chunks of the expedition when maybe you might say that joe and i got a bit blasé but we were so bored of inflating the pack rafts that we would just walk straight into the rivers and because we were we'd got these um canoe bags the waterproof canoe bags inside the rucksack they they acted as sort of flotation devices and we didn't even take the rucksacks off we'd just walk into the river and then make sure all the straps were tight on the shoulders and on the waist belt and and um we'd do this weird little sort of uh almost like a when you're treading water except we were sort of swimming forward with our arms and uh and and just because if, if the river was i don't know if we could do that in three minutes or so it rather than stop take take the pack off take the boat out inflate it and then deflate it on the other side it would save us quite a lot of time and um often when there were high concentrations of caiman um you know the alligators that that are in in the um amazon we we would sing as loud as we could because we were a bit nervous that, you know, as our legs are thrashing under the water, that we were sitting targets for um, for Cayman. But, um, yeah, luckily we never got taken. Did you get uh, bitten by anything out there? Um, nothing too serious. Um, the the amount of close encounters with snakes was, was um, I mean, ridiculous. I mean, sometimes you... You know, we were we were coming across six, seven, eight snakes a day, and you know, multiply that by eight hundred and sixty days. Although, you know, sometimes we didn't see a snake for a couple of weeks. Um, there was there was encounters with anaconda, many anacondas with vipers. Um, we were really lucky, I think, in so many respects. Um, you know, we could hear hear jaguars sometimes when we were sleeping in our hammocks at night, but we never actually saw one. Um, uh, 
I think, I mean, mosquitoes, yes, about 50,000 <laughs> yeah. bites. Scorpions, yes, I would estimate 50 times I got stung by scorpions because, again, they they sort of locate themselves on the underside of leaves and you just walk past and they've got this sort of radiating pain that, that goes up your arm and you go, oh, Christ, I've been hit by a scorpion again. But about the same as a... Not that this probably helps for those who haven't been stung by bullet ants, but yeah, about the same as a bullet ant, I would say. Um, and then bees, actually, bees and wasps were, were one of the big things because again, they they their their nests are on the underside of leaves and and therefore quite hidden. And we go through one of those with a machete, and and um, suddenly the person at the front gets stung about twenty or thirty times by bees. Um, and the one behind is just laughing <laughs> um, because it just became funny after a while. Um, and not for the person at front, it never became funny. I guess it has to become funny, otherwise you would just despair. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I remember I grew up because my first first experience with jungle expeditions was in Belize, and they had um, at the time there was this sort of quite serious threat of Africanized killer bees, and there'd been this strain of killer bee that had escaped and that was prevalent in Central America at the time and and they were actually aggressive bees that were, that could kill you and um, and so we'd got these sort of these sort of uh, actions on if we got attacked by killer bees that we'd run into the bushes and that we'd lie face down and we'd keep our rucksack on to protect our back from stings and that we'd put our hands over our nose and mouth and throat so that we didn't um, you know go into anaphylactic shock etc etc and um, and so we <laughs> we went from being super hyper vigilant to just thinking it was hilarious and you know um, clearly well we didn't come across any africanized killer bees they were they were they stung and they hurt but but, but um but once they'd happened a few times you just you just ended up going thank god that's not me and then <laughs> after that just thinking it's hilarious um, so yeah, I suppose you had to draw some humor from somewhere really a lot of people would think that it was it would be the physical challenge of a task like walking the Amazon that would be the big thing you had to overcome. But I've heard you talk about uh, talk before about the mental aspect of it and, and what a big role that played. Tell us yeah. a little bit about that because I think people will find it fascinating that balance between the physical challenge and then uh, the mental challenge that goes along with that. Okay, well, I mean, I mean, I've never hidden the fact that I didn't do any sort of. Um, mental preparation i didn't i didn't know anything about psychology really before i went and um and i suppose as as a very crude but but quite typical ex-british army um officer i i you know if i had stresses and strains i I would have a beer in the evening and i i'd I'd probably drank quite a lot when i was in the military and and when you're in the jungle obviously there's no option to have a beer but you still have the same stresses and strains and um and they they seemed to um they seem to build because there wasn't many people to talk to. If you get annoyed about something, it can stay in your brain all all day long. And what I eventually found is that um, for some reason, my my predominant mood was negative. I, I, was, I was getting quite angry. The most minor thing would happen, like Cho would be two minutes late packing his rucksack in the morning. And I, I, would, I would, you know, we say we'd leave at seven o'clock and he's not ready to two minutes past seven, which let's face it, in the grand scheme of things, doesn't really matter when you're walking for two and a half years. But I, I would get really angry. I'd get fuming at him, you know, because he was in my head, you know, costing us time. And I, I was so obsessed in, in getting to the end that, that anything that got in the way was, was, would, would upset me. And so, um, I think I was quite unpleasant to walk with for a while because, because I, I, I'd got things out of perspective. Um, and I remember my, I had a lovely lady who did all my publicity for free um, because she just she just liked what what the expedition and what I was doing and um, she had another client who was a neuro linguistic programming expert and she said look I I can tell um, by your emails by your blogs that you're struggling if you want um, to have a chat with this guy this is this is his number so I called him up from the middle of the rainforest and um, <clears throat> I think we had about three half hour conversations in the end but he just was able to say to me look. That you are you've been away from home for for at this point about a year and a half you've you've been cut off from all the people that you love um and he he just tried to put in place a few things that would help me regain perspective i was so determined to get to the end that it'd become obsessive and that anything that got in the way um became the sort of uh focus of my anger and so he would uh, one of the one of the little trips and he gave me loads of little tips and tricks but it was to 
envisage when I could feel myself getting into one of these sort of negative spirals, envisage somebody in my life who was really inspirational to me. And uh, my first sergeant major when I joined the military was a guy called Mark Hale. And he was a really big guy, rugby player. He was... um, he was devout Christian. Um, he was doing an MSc in psychology. So he wasn't, you know, your typical meathead squaddy. He was a really inspiring guy. And I, I would envisage him and um, and I really looked up to him. And, and, and when, when I was going into one of these negative things, I would imagine that he was there and um, sort of looking at me with a bemused smile on his face going, Mr. Stafford, what are you doing? And um, it was just enough for me to see the, see the madness in it and see and see that I wouldn't act like that in front of Mark. I was almost having this little indulgent um, indulgent little strop, really. Wouldn't act like that in front of anyone, really. And so it gave me a little bit more perspective in order to um, realize how I was behaving and then sort of step outside of it before it took hold, I suppose. Um, and it's basic stuff, real, real layman sort of um, layman methods of, of sort of managing your brain. But I'd never done any of that sort of that sort of psychological management before I just thought you know if you're angry you're angry or if you're upset you're upset but you know to be able to recognize thoughts and emotions as they come in before they set hold because as I said it you know you you sort of propagate these things in your own brain and and, and one tiny little niggle can become huge in in a matter of hours because you've been thinking about it non-stop because there's no other stimulation um so yeah no it was it was definitely part of the expedition that um it was the part of the expedition that I struggled with the most was was staying positive and yet and yet I think if I'd got the skills that I've got now like I meditate in 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 modern day life because I think it's quite good to have a little bit of a little bit of perspective on your own thoughts and emotions and you know to believe that you are every single thought that comes into your head is 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 actually a path to madness I think because we all have thoughts that are involuntary and just pop up into our head and 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 just to have a little bit of distance to be able to sort of view them and go, do you know what? I don't have to engage in that. I think it gives me massive freedom, certainly for doing the the current adventures that I do and in everyday life, just in terms of you know running a household and being a good husband and 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 being a good dad. Not not getting not just um, getting caught up in things. You know, being able to step back, having some perspective gives you proper choice and a bit more sort of emotional balance. I think. But yeah, that was definitely one of the. The biggest learning things, I think, from from walking the Amazon in general. Uh, I'd encourage uh, anyone listening to this to go and find the documentary that you made about it. Uh, and that kind of brings me to one of the last questions about that particular adventure, which was that you did actually film the whole thing, which we are both filmmakers. And I find that incredible that even despite all the kind of the stress and strain of completing uh, this incredible feat, you were also documenting the whole thing online and video which was then made into a documentary. We, we know how difficult it is when you're going and there's only two of you, uh, but yeah. doing it by yourself, we appreciate how hard it is, but then doing it with all the extra stress that you're putting on the kit, like a, a two-year-long trip with the, the moisture and everything like that, it it must be tough. Well, I mean, I appreciate the... Um, I appreciate that, but I, I, I mean, it was. It did make it harder. I... I um, I'm not happy with how I filmed it, though. I mean, certainly looking back at it from having made, you know, I think six or seven self-filmed series now for Discovery. But um, I, I've, my dogs are... <laughs> That's OK. Happy. We normally have one running around the office as well, <laughs> pulling cables yeah. out. Ba- basically, I, um, I did miss a number of very, very key moments um, when we were held up at Arrow Point by Indigenous Indians. I, I was too scared to get the camera out when I had shotguns pointed in my chest by um by drugs traffickers same deal so you know there were some tv gold moments that where the camera was packed in my bag and and turned off and i and i cursed myself for that which is why actually i'm i'm happier with the book than i am with the documentary because the di- documentary sort of skims the surface in terms of the, the real dangerous bits um but you know um i am i think it was for me it was um it was a foot in the door because um, I, I, as much as I'd love to say it was a romantic notion just to walk the length of the Amazon and I had no intention of, of creating anything from it. Um, that's not the case. I, I had a sort of strategy. I thought if I, if I do an expedition like this that no one's done before and I film it, there is a likelihood that I'll be able to get it on TV if, I, if, it, if, if it gets enough sort of media attention, which again it did at the end of the expedition. So it was, um, it was a strategy. I really wanted to... Um, there's a guy called Bruce Parry who um, 
did a lot of tribe stuff for the BBC um, uh, when I was getting first into expeditions, and he, and I'd, I'd spent some time with him doing gap year expeditions, and and he'd gone off and done this amazing trip um, across um, West Papua. And it made a TV documentary called Cannibals and Crampons, and that led him into being doing um, Tribe TV with um, with the BBC. And I, I, I used that as a model, really. And I thought, you know what, this this is an area where I want to go into. I find I still to this day find creating, um, telling a story through through a camera, through a video camera, is is such a nice device. I love it. I love thinking about all the shots. I love thinking about how the way I'm going to shoot it. And so, actually. Although it was more work, it gave me it gave me another thing to keep me sane. Actually, the the, the creative side um, meant that it wasn't just a physical slog and it wasn't just being bitten by mosquitoes. I was actually thinking, Do you know what, this is beautiful as well. I need to capture this bit. Or you know, if I went and put a camera on that bit of hard ground, I could capture myself walking through this flooded forest or whatever. And and I think in a way, it's nice to have a sort of sub project that you can that you can focus on in order to. Um, yeah, in, in order to stop thinking about the fact that your shoulders hurt and your feet hurt, really. Having successfully completed it, yeah. what was the, the kind of fallout like after that, getting back to normality, kind of civilization, relatively speaking, and then the next steps? Because you've had a, a number, you've mentioned already, but you've had a, a number of very successful and very entertaining series after, which I'm guessing spawned off the back of it, as was your master plan. Um, well, it was part of the plan. Yes, um, I. It came back to an incredibly positive response. Uh, the, the PR lady that I that I mentioned before, she was called Vicky Rimmer, but she was she was utterly amazing. We did a, you know, you can you can work out from the amount of column inches how much to pay for that um, that a level of publicity would actually cost, and it came to about twenty five million pounds uh, wow. worth of publicity that was created. I mean, we were on CNN International. Uh, for 10 days in a row um, at the end of the expedition broadcasting live interviews um, from from the satellite internet link in my rucksack and you know to be on CNN International which goes out to about 230 international territories for one day is good enough but to have that in 10 days sequentially (laughs) was just extraordinary she did an amazing job as on the front page of the New York Times the front page of the Times in the UK well the iPad version anyway but you know it was extraordinary and and so as a result came back to this real sort of wave of positivity um which was which was wonderful and it was just you know I was so relieved to be home but I was also you know really chuffed that people seemed to care I suppose people seemed to be quite engaged with it um so it did lead into um, this clearly Discovery Channel then commissioned it after post post expedition. Um, it got made into a documentary, and lots of people watched it, which was great. So it led into then me doing um, more TV, and and then they said to me, do, "What do you think you want to do next?" And I was like, "Well, I'm not going to do another two and a half years walking through a rainforest. So it needs to be a lot shorter." And they said the problem with it with you only because I said I'd give them two months, and I, they said the problem with that is that. It's not going to seem as impressive as your two and a half year walk down the Amazon. What what could you do in two months that is that impressive? And I said, well, it's only not that impressive if I've got the same amount of stuff. So why don't you take away from me, um, you know, my rucksack and my hammock and my tent, and and then eventually it was decided like if you stripped away everything. So if if I was if I was to have no food, no water, no knife, uh, no equipment of any sort to survive no clothes and dropped on a desert island, um, you know, would I be able to survive? Could I, could I make it with just my bare hands and half a brain? And um, the honest answer was I didn't, I didn't know because I was a, an ex-military guy who wasn't really a survival expert. I was, I was an expedition leader and I genuinely didn't know if they dropped me on an island for two months if I could sort of do the whole Robinson Crusoe thing and, and survive. Um, and so they said, brilliant. Well, if you don't know, that's going to make even better TV. <laughs> so uh, that's how it started. And I did a 60-day thing on an island between Fiji and Tonga. And quite frankly, I really, really struggled. Um, again, mentally, mostly. But, you know, even getting a fire going with, with uh, two sticks took me 13 days on the island. Um, and um, eventually I did it and, and got to the end. And, and again, that did really, really really well in terms of ratings on, on Discovery Channel. So so it's led to one after another after another, and, and I, I, I just think it's a dream come true now. I think what was probably quite a chest-beating, ego reason for walking the Amazon has developed into something quite quite a lot more wholesome. You know, I'm, I'm married now and I've got a kid, and, um, you know, to go away and do these fun trips, but actually 
in order to bring home enough money to pay the mortgage at the end of the month and somehow and also to put myself through these challenges rather than you know it being all about shouting look look at me I'm, look how tough I am it, I look at it more as you know it's good to keep being challenged it's good to keep being humbled by situations where you don't necessarily have all the, an- uh, the right answers and, and have to therefore think outside the box and, and, and come up with new solutions so you, it's, it's a sort of a way of, of staying mentally young and, and, and evolving from a personal perspective or, or rather than stagnating, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, it's one thing's led to another, and I'm, I'm extraordinarily lucky to be in the, in the position I am. I'm, it's 10 years ago since I walked the Amazon, um, or 10 years ago today I was, I was walking the Amazon, but equally 10 years ago in, in, um, in a year's time I'll, I'll, still be, I'll still be walking the Amazon. Um, so yeah. it's a... It's a bit of a folly, but it was a while ago. But you know, luckily, the sort of the sort of positivity that that it that it created still sort of lives on. Amazingly. Now, one of my my favourite series that you've actually done so far is the one where you basically pick points on Google Maps, and yeah. you were like, "I'm going to go and find out what's there." Did you come up with that concept? Um, I didn't. It was a company called Keo Films. Well, in fact, the, the concept evolved and had been pitched a couple of times to them before um, in different guises. Um, it was called Unmapped at one stage. It was called Trailblazer at one stage. And, and the, the final name for the series was Into the Unknown. But um, it was um, it was probably one of the most fun to film. Uh, it's literally just picking something bizarre that you can that you can see on, on Google Earth or Google Maps and um, and just packing, packing a rucksack and booking a flight and, and going and finding out what it was. And it was quite investigative and um, and it meant meeting lots of people and, and you know, asking for favours and hitching rides on lorries and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, it was a really good thing, good fun thing to film. Unfortunately, it, although it did, it, it did really well in the UK, it, in certain territories internationally, it didn't do well. And then they, they rank things from A to F on Discovery Channel. And it was, I think it was a B in the UK, but it, it got an F in Norway, for example. So, um, and you have to have a certain level of consistency for a, for a series to get recommissioned. So, uh, unfortunately, it, it just it didn't it didn't take enough boxes, so it didn't get recommissioned. But it was a really really good fun one to film. Yeah. Yeah, that's a shame actually. Of all the of all the different investigations you did, what was the one that surprised you the most? Um, I think <clears throat> I think the one to um, West Papua actually. Um, yeah. It was an island on the on the south of West Papua. Um, can't even remember what it's called to this day but there was these parallel lines that appeared to be um right in the middle of a swamp and they they were they clear they appeared to be man-made and yet there, was, there seemed to be no reason why there would be um why there would be sort of man-made parallel lines down there and i sort of postulated that it might be some sort of open cast mining but i really didn't have a clue and the journey itself just getting there was was mental it was you know, having to hitch rides on on mopeds that were no motorbikes that were sort of going through these incredibly muddy tracks through through the rainforest and then down beaches and stuff and eventually got to this area and started talking to this tribe and it and um it sort of it sort of um it sort of dawned on me what 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 was going on as as i was sitting there talking about talking to them because they were they were living on these islands in the middle of a swamp but the swamp didn't have any islands um, certainly not on my way in. It had just been this endless sort of grassy swamp, basically. And then, and then I got to the centre, and there were these little islands that the people were were living on. Um, and then they went everywhere by boat. And it was only going off. And I did a little video diary the first night that I got there. And I looked around me, and there was there were these sort of um, wooden stakes all around the island. And I thought, oh, they must have put those in to protect the shores from erosion. And then I realised that they weren't there to protect the shores of the island from erosion. They, they were stakes that had been put in in order to create the island. So they'd basically put this ring of stakes in and then they grabbed all the grass and vegetation from the outside and the reeds and stuff, dumped it in the middle and created islands for themselves. And they'd actually sort of built a home up and out of the swamp. And so these parallel lines were, um, were the agricultural version of that. They were, they were huge agricultural um, farming strips basically that they'd again built up out of the swamp in order to create a life and it was it sort of ended up being this fascinating story that they were a very peaceful tribe and they were very they'd got fed up um of of the inter-tribal fighting in west papua and they'd escaped down to this swamp which 
everyone else on in West Papua thought was uninhabitable, and they'd basically built their own land up and out of the swamp, which was, you know, the most one of the most sort of fascinating um, sort of outcomes of a of a, an anomaly that you could see on Google Earth than I could possibly imagine, really, because it ended up telling a, a whole story of this fascinating but really really peaceful people. So yeah, that was probably the the one that sticks in my mind the most. I have to say, for me, that was also the episode. That, that was what I had in mind yeah. when I asked you the question. Actually. Good, I answered yeah. the right, right <laughs> way then. <laughs> well, like I said at the start, modern-day kind of explorers and adventurers like yourself and Sean Conway, who's been on this podcast as well, a lot of people, I think, take a lot of inspiration, maybe not to go and do something quite as grand as what you guys have done, but in their own, in a small way, in their own lives. And you've just released a book, um, Adventures for a Lifetime, yeah. which has a vast array of different adventures, big and small. And one of the things I loved about all, this is... All around the globe Yeah, as well. all around the globe. There's a couple from yeah. our home country up here in Scotland. But some, some of the, the adventures in there are very achievable for most people. And I really liked that aspect of it where it hadn't just simply focused on the most grand expeditions there were. Tell me about why you came up with, with the book and put pen to paper to put this together. Yeah, sure. I'm, well mainly because I haven't done anything book-worthy for uh, the last few years. And so I had to come up with uh, some idea in order to cobble together a book. Now, the, the real reason is I, I became a dad about 17 months ago, and um, it shifted me, actually, um, to a place of um, thinking, do you know what? What I've achieved is great, and it, and it does pay the bills, and, and, and I enjoy going and having all these adventures. But is there something that I can do with it? And um I'd been an ambassador for the Scouts for quite a while, but I'd been quite quiet. And I, and I thought, do you know what? The, there is so much that I've learned um, and, and there is so much that I've got to be grateful for, for the way I've developed as a person um, by having all these adventures. And so I think if there is one thing that I can, I can now do with it all, it's, it's, it's encouraged that in, in a lot of other people. So I've now become a patron of the Youth Adventure Trust, which again is for, it's a bit like the Scouts, but it's for less um, less fortunate, vulnerable, more vulnerable people um, um, and that might not have enough confidence, for example, to go in and, and join the Scouts. And um, and so it is <clears throat> part of my sort of um, way, it just ends up being what I focus on at the moment, is is encouraging other people to get out and have adventures. And it, it, it needed the top line big expeditions um, in order to be sort of inspiring as a top level. But I also didn't want to make it, you know, it didn't want everything to be a two and a half year walking the Amazon or a, or a walk across Antarctica because I wanted it to not put people off, I suppose, in, in, the, in, the, in the size and scale of, of expeditions. So it was deliberately all different. The book was definitely written with, with um, all different abilities and, and levels of experience in mind. But um, I, I don't think I'm really expecting anyone to copy any of the trips um, exactly as I've written them, but it was it was definitely a text that I wanted to get people inspired by you know to 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 think do you know what crikey if i did point pick two points on a map in the brazilian rainforest and they were say 50 50 miles apart or something could i plan an expedition to fly into the country hire a local guy with a boat take me up river to one of these points and then get out of the boat with enough supplies to last me two weeks or whatever and uh, and a lighter and and just walk through the rainforest on a compass bearing until I get to another point uh, which which and and you can almost guarantee that those two points have never been walked in the Amazon before and you know you could actually get an expedition off the ground to do something that no one's ever done before because there's there's so much that is out there that is unexplored and and it, it's not they're not trips that you could go into thomas cook and and, and book off the show you know I, I genuinely i'm not really a fan of you know even if you go to the coolest places on earth if you go on a on a cruise to antarctica it can be the least adventurous thing possible because totally everything's agree. Done totally, to you, you know yeah. you step off onto the ice and you know you've you've got dinner served to you or whatever amongst the penguins and it, you know it, it's it's sort of opulence in a way it revolts me some of, some of the amount of money that's spent on on travel but it's done in such a i don't know a way that rubs me up the wrong way anyway and 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 i think you know the scale is irrelevant but but doing it yourself coming up with ideas yourself thinking ones that scare you a little bit as well you know thinking wow if i actually 
could I pull that together? You know, would I have to go and learn Portuguese, for example, in my Brazilian example? Maybe I'd have to learn how to navigate. I'd have to go to, you know, the mountaineering school in Platy Brennan and, and take a five-day course so that my navigation skills were... But, you know, if I did all the proper preparation and saved up enough money, could I, could I get something off the ground like that myself? And I think, invariably, that's a massive learning, learning process and growing process in itself, just pulling the whole thing together. And then when you get there, invariably everything goes wrong, and then you're having to think on your feet, and a guide will get drunk and steal your money or something, <laughs> and, and you'll have to get out of that situation. But suddenly you've got excitement, and you're having to use all of the, all of the things that we don't use, you know, the parts of your brain where you're having to think outside the box and deal with some angry, drunk uh, Brazilian that you wouldn't have to do if you're getting on the tube and going to work every day. So it's, it's uh, having adventures and sort of dragging yourself into a world of adventure, kicking and screaming for really positive, wholesome reasons. It's not a book for adrenaline junkies. It's not just to jump off big buildings and go woohoo and, and have loads of adrenaline pumped through your system. Some of them will cause uh, adrenaline to be pumped through your system, but I, I really believe in it in, in, as a way of sort of personal development in, 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 in becoming the, almost the best version of yourself, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, that's... that's in a very long-winded way, that's that's why I wrote it. Yeah. Well, no, I, I think it will certainly. I think it will certainly do that, and I, I I couldn't agree with you more. I think there's nothing worse than going to to a place and playing the role of the tourist, yeah. because you never really have a story to tell at the end of it. But the, the way that you describe it, you certainly do. Yeah, and I think yeah, exactly. The the um, you're treated differently, aren't you? And it's actually why I think. The, the job that I do where I'm going to make TV programs is such a nice one because I get to go to places that I've never been before, but, but I've got a job to do when I get there. And I think, you know, Trek Forest, the, the, the expedition charity that I used to work for was great because, again, you go to parts of the rainforest, which are extraordinary, but you're not doing it just for your own enjoyment. You're doing it to get a job done and you're doing it to help people. And, and I think for me, that then the, the contacts that you do make in country are so much more meaningful because you're working alongside somebody and you're you're having to... Uh, overcome all sorts of cultural differences in order to achieve something and i think that again it just puts a different different energy on the whole thing and you're not you're not just there to make yourself happy or you know in uh, have this really personal i don't know but and yet quite selfish um experience of you know this is this is when i had a glass of champagne on the top of this mountain that was brought up for me by a porter that i didn't bloody carry you know, you get the point. <laughs> yeah. In in yeah. the book, obviously, there's a there's a huge spectrum of things from the Isles. In fact, I was on I was on Sky last week in a hotel room reading the section about yeah. Sky, <laughs> looking at the Coolan Mountains. When you, it was quite funny because oh, wow. at, the, at the same time, because we do a lot of work on the West Coast. Um, okay. But what made you decide particularly ones? I think there's obviously ones there where um, the the canoe or kayak and canoeing down the Amazon because your yeah. wife was involved in that one. But yeah. w what made you pick certain other ones? That uh, maybe you, because I'm guessing that you probably didn't do all of them. <laughs> no, no, and it and it does state very clearly at the beginning. <laughs> I uh, I yeah. did an interview on what was it Five Live uh, last week and. Um, and the lady was so crestfallen when I said that I hadn't done them all. I obviously haven't made it clear enough that, <laughs> that this isn't my sort of uh, autobiography of adventure at all. You know, I, I just wanted to put, there were two different breadths of um, sort of variation that I wanted to achieve. One was at sort of entry level. I wanted to have stuff that you could do with zero experience and just go out and, 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 and walk. But equally, I wanted to have stuff that was, from all sorts of different genres of, ex of exploration from you know scuba diving to walking to long distance cycling you know and, and i think that was really important because it doesn't matter what format adventure comes in and it doesn't matter at what level because it's all relevant it's all relevant to you isn't it you know if if, if my sister for example was to um I don't know, go camping in France. That would be extraordinarily adventurous for her because because she doesn't she doesn't do that sort of thing and that, that's not her type of thing. So I, I, I genuinely think it's it's creating an environment where which does slightly push you out of your comfort zone that that is what I was trying to do. So so yes, um like Lewis Pugh and his ice swimming and stuff, you know, he's just somebody who's caught my yeah, attention yeah. who I don't know him, but he's coming somebody that's caught my attention that I'm that I'm um 
that you know I'm impressed by. And and again, I probably if I'd if I'd written the whole thing a few months later, swimming around Britain would have been one, and 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 Ross Edgeley would have been would it would have been in the book because again, it's it's just picking on stuff that makes me smile and go, wow, this guy is nuts, but in a really in a really good way, I suppose. Yeah. But potential for volume two then. <laughs> Definitely a potential for volume two. Yeah, that's good. Nice of you to sort of slip that in. If Harper Collins is listening, then uh... <laughs> uh, we we got the book as of, I think before it hit the shops. Um, your publisher was very your kind. Your publisher was very good. Ago. So oh, is, cool. is it actually yeah. out yet? Yeah, no, it is. Out. It came out on um, October the fourth, I think. Um, so yeah, no, it's had it's had a really nice. Um, it's been received really, really well. Actually, everyone's been very complimentary about it, and I, I was worried because it's the first time I've written something that isn't about my own adventures or my own mental struggle, or you know, and and to that extent, it was quite refreshing to to write in many ways because it was a new challenge for me. I was having to write about subjects that that were new to me as well. Um, but I suppose with the sort of background experience of, of sort of feeling like a sort of generic adventurer anyway so yeah you know, it, was, it was lovely to write and i'm so i'm quite relieved that, that, that it's gone down as well i noticed it is also on audiobook i was looking yesterday and it's yeah. out, out now on audiobook i did notice the problem your... with doing an audiobook is that all of the typos that you missed when you proofread it <laughs> you, you suddenly see and you're like oh bloody hell how did that one get through i can't believe i let that get through but, um, yeah. Yes, I, I, I did notice as well that your Walking the Amazon is on audiobook as well, but only in German. No, is it? Yes, I promise you, it's on audio Audible uh, on Amazon. And it's only in German, and there was a lot of negative reviews, and I was interested to see why they were negative, and it was all negative reviews because it was English <laughs> saying we want saying, it in English, saying we want it in English. So I think you might need to sort that out. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that on on Audible? On Audible, yeah, yeah. Ah. There's a demand. <laughs> There's a demand. Well, um, and I've I've contacted them, and they said it's not there isn't enough demand, and that I would have to pay for it myself if I wanted to do an audiobook. So, well, maybe you should po- maybe point that out. To them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I will. Yeah. Um, I'd love to do it actually, because that's the one, that is still the one I'm I'm I suppose the most proud of. So yeah, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to do the audiobook of that. Well, it was the, the, an amazing launch platform for your career, certainly. It was. Um, yeah, Ed, just as we uh, get to wrap up, I'd happily talk to you for for hours about this, but I, I know that we, we have to uh, pretty much wrap up now. Uh, and mm-hmm. we, we asked um, podcast listeners for questions, and we've selected one of them. So this comes from uh, a podcast listener from, from last week. And mm-hmm. it's from Paul Wilkie, and he is asking how on the sort of – I guess this is going to be kind of irrelevant for uh, sort of naked in a when you, when you're naked and marooned. But um, how do you maintain a decent diet when you're on long expeditions, or is that something that's actually possible? Um, again, I suppose I've come full circle. Really, the Amazon was my diet was terrible. Certainly, when I went through Peru, we were we were every single little tiny shop we were buying cheap processed biscuits and fizzy fizzy pop and you know and and i was even when i was going into shops to buy provisions for long distances with the amount of sugar that i actually thought that i needed um was horrendous and so we were we were going for at one point when there was about four of us walking we were going for a kilo and a half of sugar a day um the survival stuff's a bit different because clearly i have to just eat whatever's on offer and and you know that i invariably always end up losing weight on those but but um, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think, you know, we, we often overindulge a little bit too much on the eating front, don't we? So I, I come back at what I sort of view to be my sort of more more my fighting weight. Um, so so that's just whatever I can shove in my mouth, really. And on expeditions now, if I, if I was to go on, on, on trips now, I don't think I need as much as I used to think that I did. Um, but there's some amazing... Um, there's some amazing new, um, they're not freeze-dried, they're dehydrated foods, and there's quite a big difference. Like I think it's Firepot make them, um, uh, is a really nice company that, that make them. So there's, there's meals that are, are actual meals that are then dehydrated and then popped in bags, and I think the shelf life's a bit less. It's two years rather than about 10 years, but, but it's real food, and, and I'd, I'd often go for stuff like that. And, and if I was sourcing it in-country, I'd just go for for cheap staples that you can knock up, you know, I'd still go for things like rice and beans and things that you can cook in the field that are, that are quite lightweight, um, avoiding. I think I, I now I, I struggle taking big tins of stuff. I think that's all a bit heavy, but you know, dry, dry stuff that can then be complemented as you go with, um, 
with fish, fresh fish that you catch in rivers locally, that's quite nice. Um, but but to have a sort of staple that will keep you going is is a good thing. Yeah. Has um has the way that you've had to source food on on expeditions and on your TV uh, programs changed your kind of appreciation for food when you come home? Um. Well, I think I don't, it's probably not revealing too much to say that certainly after the sixty days, I I, I developed a pretty close to 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 sort of um problem issues with food i i became really obsessive i, I was waking up in the middle of the night and going to the fridge and and eating huge huge amounts of food to the point where i was absolutely bloated because i think i you know when you don't have enough food it's very very difficult to to not obsess about it and um and so came back with a with a pretty unhealthy um with with a pretty unhealthy outlook on food i think I think nowadays I um, it's all come back into line. Really, um, I just try and eat healthily. Really, I'm not. I, I'm not. I, I have had periods in my life where I've tried to be paleo or tried to follow a a, um, a ketotic diet or all various different evolutions of, 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 of that I suppose really based from from paleo. But but um, I, I kind of feel like when I try too hard and then when I try and be too strict to myself, I end up end up um, removing stuff that is just nice to eat, like, you know, your carbohydrates and sweets and stuff, and then end up having a little, a little binge every now and again. So I actually think, do you know what, if I'm just relaxed about it and I, and I eat reasonably healthy food, then, then that's a better state to be really. And, um, I think that applies on expedition and in real life, really. Yeah. Uh, Ed, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, it's been fascinating Absolute to speak pleasure. to you. Uh, I've we've both really enjoyed your book, as we've already said. I encourage people to go and, and check it out. And if, if I, I find it hard, I would find it hard to believe that most people who listen to this podcast don't already know who you are and haven't watched a lot of your programs already. But if they haven't, I encourage them to go to go back to your your back catalogue and watch your adventures over the last ten years now. Thank you both very much. I hugely appreciate you doing the uh, podcast. Thank you. That's it for another week. Join us again. It won't be quite two weeks' time because we were a little yeah, bit late uh, picking this out, but it will be almost in two weeks' time. It is. We've got we've got a whole heap of cool things coming up. We're going to another podcast about um, aquaculture and salmon and issues on on the west coast uh, with Corin Smith. Uh, we've got one on renewables coming up. That was as a result of our, our shout out and, and yep. talking about. So renewables. appreciate it to everyone that emailed in. Talking, we've had quite a few about actually. renewables. So we, we've got a, a gr- what should be a good podcast on that. I think. Um, coming and up we got well. the the guys involved in Brother Phil coming on the, while we're recording the show in a day's time once yeah. this goes out. Yeah, if you don't know them, just uh, to give you a bit of background before the podcast comes out, go and check out Brother Film. They make some incredible films. They've done a lot of stuff in F1 and for, for Red Bull. They do a lot of big film, um, music festivals. Uh, really cool company. And I, we've never actually spoken to the guys ourselves, so we're really looking forward to getting them on the show. We are indeed, and rugby season is also upon us. I uh, at the weekend, uh, Scotland just played Wales. Got, I didn't. Well, who won? Um, Wales trash Scotland. Oh dear, that's um, depressing. Is that why you were looking so miserable this morning? <laughs> South Africa played England, and uh, yeah, there was a, a little bit of a controversial thing at the end. Yeah, what happened? Um, a, a shoulder barge that could have changed the course of the game. But oh dear, I don't know. I think the English fans will say that it was fair. Um, I, I don't know. It was. Let's put it this way. I've seen penalties given for less than mm. what Owen Farrell did. Good thing it wasn't really for anything, that game. No, was that, no, that was just a friendly, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, not, not really. But, I mean, the point is consistency. Mm, true. Uh, but, anyway, it, it was I, it was still a good game. I, I really enjoyed the. And then I, I didn't watch the Italy-Ireland game, um, but I'm kind of glad I didn't because I think the final score was like 50 six or something it was it was a complete decimation of ireland was, sorry of italy was it not the first uh female referee of a major rugby game this weekend um possibly i yeah maybe notice. not it might have been other what maybe, rugby league maybe, I think maybe, maybe it was rugby, rugby league, league yeah. it wasn't any of the two games that oh, i okay. saw anyway i heard something on the radio of it. but the autumn tests are well and truly underway and we've got scotland playing fiji south africa and argentina and uh 
I don't know who I'm not. I, I don't really. I follow the other teams, but not as closely. So I don't know who else everyone else is playing. But well, by by this weekend's performance, it sounds like it might be tough. Well, I'm hoping they've just got it out of their system. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, is Scotland never really wins when they go down to Wales. They never win. Yeah. No, but then again, this is the first time Wales have won in like 16 years in their opening Test match. And um, I don't think it's a very good excuse. No, they just need to play more consistently. A lot of new players though. A lot of new. All the big boys are out right now. Injured. All injured, yep. Uh, or not there. Oh, well. And with that, um, I think we will leave you. Yep, we will. Remember, you can listen on loads of different platforms. Spotify being the one we're encouraging you to go on to right now. Uh, by the way, SoundCloud, we're not really using right now. Uh, we stopped paying the ridiculous fee for it, which was like £200 a year just to upload a your track onto it, which, considering all the rest of them are free, is a ridiculous amount. Um, so... You're meant to be able to listen to the last two tracks we upload. It's not working right now. Go on to YouTube if you're on a PC. Yes, uh, there's YouTube, there's uh, Spotify, which is free, by the way. Um, You can sign up for the premium one, which I do actually have because the music's pretty good on it. Uh, And when you listen to a podcast, there's not even any adverts. There's no adverts. Even on the free one. Yeah, so so, um, Spotify, iTunes, obviously the one that I think 90% of everyone uses. Uh, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio. The list is endless. Just type in Podcast Into the Wilderness and you will find it. If you want to contact the show, it's podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. And on the social media, it is pace underscore brothers on Instagram and it's Podcast Into the Wilderness on Facebook. And just lastly, we mentioned this at the very start of the podcast, but a massive congratulations to Rod Ross Edgley for completing his swim around the UK. What an incredible feat. Yes, so, round and of applause look, to and you. look painful. It yeah. looked painful, but not incredible. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, mentally, uh, there. I think there are very few people who can do that. <laughs> incredible. So, congratulations uh, to Ross, and you will hear from us in just under two weeks. 